Market Journal, television for agricultural business decisions, is a presentation of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln's Institute of Agriculture and Natural Resources. Promotional support is provided by the Nebraska Farmer Magazine. Partial funding is provided by the Nebraska Soybean Board and the Nebraska Corn Board. Well, thanks so much for joining us today on Market Journal. I'm Brian Stuskit. Somehow, folks, we're already about halfway through the month of July, if you can believe that. Coming up on this week's program, we're going to be taking a look at some new sprayer technology that has reduced herbicide use in some cases by up to 90%. Also this week, USDA came out with updated yield projections for both corn and soybeans. Todd Holman from DTN is going to be joining us to break down the market reaction to the latest WASDE report. That's a look at what we've got coming up, but first... Let's head out and into the fields now for this update on the 2023 growing season. In the Midwest, many call it the Big White Combine. It has certainly wreaked havoc across the state over the past several weeks now. Near Scotts Bluff in the Panhandle, Wilsonville in southwest Nebraska, and Waco along I-80. Just three of the numerous sites in Nebraska where hail recently pummeled crops. The Storm Prediction Center shows that most hail in Nebraska falls in the month of June. Now, the month of July is the third most common month for hail, and certainly this year that has proved to be true. Hail causes more than $1 billion in economic losses each year. Those in the path of the storm know that all too well. There in southwest Nebraska, Steve Rice runs SR Farms Alfalfa Company in Wilsonville. Throughout uh, the entire month of, of uh, May and June, we've fought nine inches in rain in one storm on one farm. Uh, last Wednesday, which should have been oh, the end of June, we had a storm come through Wilsonville that just riddled us with uh, baseball-sized hail, and, and it hailed for 48 minutes. So we have a lot of damage on the property. We have a lot of crops that are damaged. Unfortunately, the wheat harvest for the guys that have wheat, it, it wiped that out. And uh, dealing with picking up debris and hay fields and hauling it off and trying to get the hay out of the mud and starting over. Now Rice is left to turn hay customers away because he doesn't have the inventory, especially for customers seeking high-quality forage. They're going to have to be looking in some other directions for some alfalfa, unfortunately. I've had some customers call, and I've had to tell them that, you know, I'm out of old crop inventory. I generally have new crop, you know, we're talking about July, and I don't have any new crop dairy-quality alfalfa this year yet. Uh, so... The grinding market has softened a little bit. You're not looking as near as high a price for the grinding hay as what it was there two, three months ago. But uh, all we can do is try. Uh, we're trying to get back into our calendar where we're cutting on 28 days, and we're still behind on that. Depending on the level of damage, there are numerous questions that may follow a hail event. Some producers in western Nebraska are considering forages where the crop was completely destroyed. Others in eastern Nebraska are weighing the option of replanting. To that point, Nebraska Extension has built out a robust hail response website. It's called Hail No. It can help navigate uh, those unique situations that producers might find themselves in. If you're interested in looking up the website, simply search Hail No on your favorite search browser. 
With only a few months to go now before the current legislation expires, conversations regarding the Farm Bill are heating up. The University of Nebraska-Lincoln recently hosted the Nebraska Federal Delegation to help the lawmakers better understand the research and innovation that is taking place at the land-grant institution. After those tours, I had the chance to visit one-on-one -on -one with U.S. Senator Deb Fisher about some of the finer details centered around that pending legislation. Joining us now is U.S. Senator Deb Fisher. Senator Fisher, you toured a lot of things here at the University in Eastern Nebraska today. What were some of the one or maybe one or two highlights uh, from your perspective this time? Well, you know, it's always a highlight. Uh, anytime that we're in the state, and I'm back every weekend, we recently had Senator Bozeman, who's ranking member on the Senate Ag Committee. I was his host in the state of Nebraska. So we've, we've covered a a lot of the state uh, getting ready for the farm bill here at the university just once again got to see all the really great things that our land grant institution is doing uh, i look forward to trying to uh, assist them make sure that our farmers and ranchers are also uh, going to be covered with their safety nets with uh, voluntary conservation uh, practices uh, looking ahead at, at all those issues out there that need to be in the farm bill. Just working hard for Nebraska. This time around, you're a bit more cautious when it comes to a timeline of the farm bill. What, can Nebraska, what should Nebraskans expect when it comes to a passage in 2023? Is that still realistic at this point? You know, things would have to come together pretty quickly. The House has to pass one. Senate has to pass one. Our bills are not going to agree, I don't believe. The Senate, it'll be by necessity, but also I think in some ways by choice, a, a much more bar bipartisan bill to be able to um, meet the needs of, of at least 60 senators. But the Senate's come together before. You know, last time uh, the Farm Bill came up, uh, we had 96 yes votes on it. So um, I'm looking forward to getting it done. We've had a lot of hearings, public hearings on the Farm Bill, and um, just have been working for the last, you know, three, four years on, on legislation that I want included in the Farm Bill as well, like dealing with precision agriculture, looking at getting those disaster aid payments out earlier to our producers when they need those, um, making sure that crop insurance is there, all the safety nets. Um, so it's, you know, I'm, I'm obviously hopeful in the long term, but uh, just when it'll happen, um, I don't know for sure. Doesn't sound like you're ruling out an extension at this point, are you? I'm not. I'm not. You know, um, we'll, we're into um, late June. We'll see what uh, what happens. Uh, we we don't have that many more days left before the August uh, work period. But um, August gives me another chance, as I always do. I'll be traveling the state all of August and meeting with people and listening to them, so it'll be helpful. Okay, final question for you. On the, on the House side in particular, they've been uh, kind of taking a bold stance when it comes to work requirements for food stamps. Is that something you're hearing on the Senate side as well? You know, I think it's, I think it's something we have to discuss. Uh, I, don't, I do not believe um, we're going to be able to get any... Um, strong work requirements in there to for food stamps. It's just a reality. Um, the Democrats are in the majority in the Senate, um, but Republicans, we, um, you know, we're pushing for our issues as well. One of those being voluntary conservation practices. Do not tie uh, conservation or any kind of disaster payments to uh, mandatory conservation. Um, you know, those are issues where the parties kind of disagree. 
And uh, so I'm just going to keep uh, listening to producers, letting them know where we are in the process and uh, seeing what they think. Now, one update for you. A week or so after that visit, Senator Fisher announced that she had successfully secured $25 million for the construction of a new Agricultural Research Service, or ARS, facility to be housed at Nebraska Innovation Campus. We'll be keeping a close eye on that uh, legislation as well as a timeline for the Farm Bill. Up next, the 2023 Weed Management Field Day was recently held out at the South Central Ag Lab, which is near Clay Center. While weeds were obviously the focus of the field day, we caught up uh, when it comes to pests with Nebraska Extension entomologist Bob Wright. Here's our conversation. Well, there are a lot of pests out there this time of year that we can talk about. Let's start on the corn front. What's impacting uh, specifically corn this time of year? Well, in July, we start to see corn rootworm beetles emerge. Uh, they can feed on silks initially, and if you're in a, in a situation, particularly uh, seed corn or white corn or popcorn, you really want to be careful that you don't have too much silk clipping that can interfere with pollination. So that's something to watch for. Uh, we have western bean cutworm moths emerging in July, and those need to scout for the egg masses. And if you have enough, uh, you want to spray just as the eggs are hatching. And typically as the tassels are emerging is a good time. Uh, spider mites are showing up in some parts of the state with this hot, dry weather. We can expect that to continue. And then to add to insult to injury, we also have grasshoppers hatching out now. And uh, so watch field borders. If you do have a lot of grasshoppers in your area, it's easier to control them when they're small and when they're outside of the field. Uh, so watch, watch the field borders and uh, spray before they get too big or too too far into the field. Remember those pests obviously can impact both corn and soybeans, but for soybeans in particular, what are you watching? Oh, the big thing I didn't mention yet is Japanese beetles are emerging and uh, they can also feed on corn silks, but they also feed on uh, soybean foliage. And if they're abundant enough, uh, along with the other soybean grasshoppers, along with other leaf feeding insects, that's something to watch for in July. Now, if you're concerned about any specific pests in your fields or if you have particular questions, our best suggestion is to reach out to your local Extension office for additional information. What well, is now time to turn our attention over to the markets? This week joining us is DTN's Todd Holman. Todd, great to see you. Great to have you back here on Market Journal. Thank you, Bryce. My pleasure. Well, we are catching you today on Wednesday, Wednesday afternoon, as uh, the markets have digested, and I'm sure you have been uh, pouring over the numbers when it comes to the latest WASD report. Big headline here seems to be with corn, and when it comes to the USDA guess, I'm going to call it their prediction at this point, when it comes to the corn yield. What, what, what's catching your attention on that front? Yeah, well, you know, first of all, Bryce, we didn't know if uh, USDA would change the yield estimate. They traditionally do not in the July report, and there's a lot of good reasons for that. We don't really have a lot of evidence uh, yet. Of course, this year is different. The last time USDA did change the corn yield estimate was 2012. That was a year in which the U.S. drought monitor looks a lot similar, looked a lot similar uh, than the one that we're facing today. So USDA did uh, come out and uh, do something unusual, and that they did lower that estimate today. 
Yeah, seems like they about had to. I want to throw out a question here that came in to the Market Journal uh, desk from David. He wrote in asking about kind of, I suppose, the methodology behind all this, Todd. Uh, again, David wrote in, how does USDA come up with the 177.5 bushels per acre average when it comes to corn, especially factored in? Uh, look at the latest drought monitor. Things uh, continue to not be extremely pretty when you look at that monitor. So, Todd, what, what can you share with us when it comes to the methodology? How do they come up with these numbers? Yes, well, I, I, I can't say I understand the entire process, but they do look at uh, weather factors. They do have satellite imagery at their disposal. Of course, the drought monitor, uh, I would think, would be a, 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 an important part of that. But to be honest, there is not a lot of evidence. There's not a lot of substance be behind the July yield estimate. And of course, we're not going to get field data from USDA until September. And that's when things really get interesting. All right, well, let's jump from corn to soybeans here quick and still break down uh, the report as it came out on Wednesday. 52 bushels an acre, I believe USDA projected there. That surprised you at all, Todd? They didn't change that number? Uh, no, actually, I expected that one, Bryce. Uh, and again, they traditionally do not change the July number. And in the case of soybeans, you know, soybeans can endure a lot of problems, but if they come up with timely rains in late July and August, they can still do very well. So. Uh, I, I understand their reluctance to uh, uh, not jump the gun when it comes to making soybean projections. There are a lot of numbers beyond the yield as I uh, just laid them out corn and soybean wise. W what stuck out to you? Anything in particular? We'll talk about how the markets reacted in a second, Todd, but did anything stick out to you, the numbers beyond the yield projections today? Well, yeah, there were uh, a few things. Um, you know, the. Uh, <laughs> I guess to put this in perspective, Bryce, uh, I think the, the point of the day is that we are looking at the potential of a large corn crop, even if we have a lower yield. And my personal view is, is a more reasonable yield is maybe in the 171 to 175 bushel an acre territory for the moment. Uh, we still have a lot to learn uh, about this crop, but that 94.1 million acre planting is not going to go away, and that is really going to add to the bearish pressures, especially when we consider that Brazil at this moment is harvesting record corn production uh, this year, and USDA, in fact, just increased that estimate by another million metric tons. So Brazil, well over 5.2 billion bushels of corn, new supplies uh, coming this year, and that's going to be a lot for us to compete with. As we uh, look at the markets at the close on Wednesday, uh, seems like all the grains took it on the chin a bit today in response to these reports. Obviously, our broadcast is going to come out a little bit later uh, past our conversation. We can't predict the future, but do you think we'll see, a, I guess maybe I should rephrase the question and ask you, what could push these markets higher at this point? Is it a story in weather? It, it would have to be weather, Bryce. Really, that's the only thing uh, that I see. In the case of soybeans, I think there's actually a good case still to be made. Uh, I think uh, these the soybean estimates uh, today did not make a lot of sense. 300 million bushels of ending stocks I think is far too high. The real number is probably closer to 220 or 230 for the new crop season. So, I, and I think most of the market understands that we have the potential for another tight supply season of soybeans ahead of us. And again, it's the, it's the planted acres that are really forcing that. 83 and a half million acres of planted soybeans in the U.S. is not enough to keep up with demand, and especially if we end up with having weather challenges 
uh, the way we're facing early in the season. Yeah. Well, we look at this report. You mentioned the term perspective. You want to try to put this in perspective of the big picture. I guess we kind of punt at this point to the month of August. Is that how you see it uh, and wait for some updated numbers? <laughs> yes, I, I understand. I think there's a lot of traders out there that want to play the guess the USDA report game. And a lot of those lost that today if uh, they, they were looking at uh, the, the general consensus uh, of numbers. The USDA disappointed just about on every level there, corn, beans, uh, and wheat. But beyond that one-day game that happens in the market, uh, we still have a tight soybean supply situation. We have concern about a lot of corn uh, ahead of us possibly. But uh, that weather concern, you know, we still need rain across much of the Midwest. We're getting some here on uh, Wednesday, uh, but it's going to take a lot more than that to, to come up with really good crops this fall. Yep, no doubt about that. A few seconds left, Todd. Give you the final word. What else is on your mind? What do you want to share with us this week? Oh, gosh. Uh, you know, it, really, a lot of this, Bryce, is a matter of timing. When we get into August, we start getting into the fields and peeling back the ears and seeing what this corn's gonna look like. That uh, is when things are gonna start to be more interesting. I'm, I'm uh, very concerned that the way we had early heat and drought early in the season uh, could have uh, uh, ramifications for the corn yield later this year. And I think that'll be very interesting to see how our new seeds hold up. Good stuff there with Todd. I always appreciate him joining us on the program. Coming up next week, we'll be talking cattle markets with Mike Briggs from Briggs Feed Yard. As always, we invite you to ask your questions here on the show. If you've got a question for Mike, simply uh, shoot us a message on Facebook or on Twitter. Well, can you believe it? County fair season is upon us. Counties all across the state celebrate each summer with 4-H and FFA contests. Carnival rides, fair food, rodeos, concerts, tractor pulls, you get the idea, lots and lots of events. It's certainly a Nebraska tradition. You can get all the dates and locations of the Nebraska County Fairs taking place in July. You can view that in the July issue of the Nebraska Farmer. Well, it's time now to get a check when it comes to weather with Nebraska Extension Meteorologist Eric Hunt. Eric, we've seen some good moisture when it comes to some specific areas over the past week or so. How are things shaping up, though, as we turn to the week ahead? Well, thanks, Bryce. Yes, actually, there has been some good precipitation across the state, and this actually is uh, reflected in the drought monitor. We have actually seen uh, quite a bit of improvement. Uh, so you'll notice a lot of the panhandle is now free of drought and normal dryness. Uh, we actually are seeing eradication of drought across far southeastern Nebraska. Uh, but I, I really want you to pay attention to on the map this week is actually uh, the amount of D4. Now, there's still a lot of exceptional drought on this map. Uh, unfortunately, some places have been exceptional drought for a long time, but there is a significant chunk of eastern Nebraska, so kind of between Seward, uh, David City, Columbus, Schuyler, that area has actually, you know, they're now back in extreme drought. And for the, some of the places in Colfax and Platte County, that's actually the first time they have been out of exceptional drought since last September. Uh, so it's been a very long time coming. Uh, in the last, uh, or, you know, this week, we actually saw a relatively good precipitation across a lot of the state. Uh, and further east into Iowa and Illinois, where they also, in, general, in a lot of cases, were eating some precipitation. So a lot of the you know, prime corn and soybean country was getting some moisture this week as well. Unfortunately, Nebraska, with, uh, with the rains, also came some very high winds. Uh, so pretty significant damage reports up around O'Neill and other parts of eastern Nebraska, or down into eastern Nebraska. And, you know, I think quite a few reports of 60 to 70 mile hour wind gusts, um, you know, were fairly common in, in this area. Uh, also want to draw your attention to some hail that occurred out in the Panhandle last Saturday. 
Uh, this is a picture from Gary Stone out in the Panhandle Research Center. Uh, these are sugar beets from Scottsbluff County that were badly damaged uh, from hail back on last Saturday. Uh, so in the short term, we actually still should see some precipitation chances across a lot of the state. Now, keep in mind, models do tend to struggle with convection in the summer. So some places will see maybe a little bit less than this. Some places could see considerably more precipitation than this. Uh, moving forward into the next week, it looks like we will see, uh, you know, I think our, we're probably getting about done with the seasonally cool conditions, but I think we're just looking at at or maybe slightly above temp, uh, normal temperatures here the next uh, week or so. Uh, precipitation looks like we actually are, you know, maybe going to see some continued chances of, of, of rain going into the next week. Uh, the models have been fairly consistent in showing precipitation across most of the state for the next seven to ten days. Um, this is not looking like maybe as much rain as we had end of June, early July, for, especially for parts of southeast Nebraska. But again, you know, continued chances of moisture, uh, which would be good at helping with the drought. Uh, 8 to 14 days, so getting you know, closer to the end of the month and, you know, kind of continuing into the, you know, you know, now we're starting into pollination time here for corn, getting important time for soybeans. So, again, I think we're going to be maybe at or slightly above seasonal norms as we move, you know, through most of the month. But I think the good news is I think we're going to avoid the worst of the extreme heat. That looks to be staying mostly into Texas, Oklahoma, and into the western part of the country. And for precipitation, it looks like we have, you know, Maybe some chances of you know, higher averages of precipitation across western part of Nebraska and relatively average elsewhere. And that's it for this week. Back to you, Bryce. Alrighty, thank you very much for that update, Eric. Finally, today we're going to be taking a look back at this year's Weed Management Field Day. I mentioned that took place recently at UNL's South Central Ag Lab. Among the demonstrations that day, participants also had a first-hand look at what's called sea and spray technology, and it's making its way into the market. We caught up with an Acres Equipment representative to get the details on this impressive machine. Today on Crop Talk, we are discussing John Deere Sea and Spray Technology from Acres Equipment. Quentin Cooksley is joining us. Quentin, thank you for joining us here on Market Journal. Yeah, thanks for having us today. Well, we are going to be talking about a relationship that you all have had with the university to test some of this at their research facilities. But first, for our viewers today that are not familiar with this technology, what does it do? So um, here we have today um, at the South Central Ag Lab here in Clay Center, we have the John Deere 612 Sea and Spray Ultimate Sprayer. Uh, this is a dual product machine and it has the ability to uh, make a broadcast application but also from a second nozzle make a sea and spray targeted application where it only applies to herbicides where it sees the weeds in the field. I think the question everybody asks is how the heck does it do that? What's the, <laughs> what's the science? How does it do that? So, so this machine is outfitted with a 120 foot carbon fiber ultra stable boom. And on that boom, we have 36 cameras that, that scan the field ahead of the boom and identify the weeds and identify the differences between those weeds and your, um, your cash crop, whether that's corn, soybeans, or cotton. Uh, in Nebraska, primarily corn and soybeans, right? Um, and so the, the, uh, the technology will analyze the difference between the weeds and, and the crop and only make that application where the weeds exist. So scanning out ahead of the machine at, at 12 miles an hour, on 30 inch row spacing and finding those weeds down to the size of about your pinky nail um, is the capability of what those cameras can find and making that targeted application, dropping that droplet out of the nozzle specifically on that weed based on your speed, boom height, um, and a few other variables. 
So obviously you can save the producer a lot of money. What are some of your early results uh, showing on that front? Yeah, so um, there, there's a lot of benefits to this technology. So obviously the the um, uh, the most popular benefit is going to be herbicide savings. And so in our studies over the past couple years using this technology, we've seen anywhere from 40 to 80 percent of savings where um, where a field starts clean, right? So I think that's a key detail that we need a, a clean field that's free of weed seed to begin with. Um, and when you have that environment and good weed control up front, there's opportunity for really, really um, successful savings there on, on your post passes with herbicide. Um, you know, in most cases, we're, we're seeing between that 50 and 80% savings in a post application. So it's like a year ago or so, we're looking at some of this new technology and saying, oh, this is the future, this is the future, but this is the present today. You all are selling this at Acres Equipment, correct? It is, so this is commercially available today at Acres. Uh, we are actually currently in our early order program for, for selling the Sea and Spray Ultimate Sprayer. Um, it's offered in a 1200 gallon and a 1600 gallon configuration. And in the 1200 gallon machine, you have a 450 gallon Sea and Spray tank and a 750 gallon residual tank. In a 1600 gallon machine, you have a 1000 gallon residual tank and a 600 gallon Sea and Spray tank. So um, a, lot of, a lot of interest in the large machine, being able to cover a lot of acres and spray different rates out of, out of each of those tanks as you go across the field. This relationship with the university, you mentioned we're out here at South Central Ag Lab, have this on display at this field day, but also have, have used it in the field. How'd that come about and what have, what have the results of that relationship been? You bet. So we're very appreciative of our relationship with the University of Nebraska and, and um, um, we have a, a strategic partnership with, with the university uh, at Acres Equipment. Um, across many different facets of the business. Um, so we reached out and, and wanted to, to really do a deep dive on the capability of this technology in a true field application. Um, this gives us the ability to go out to our customers and promote with real world data what the technology is truly doing in a field application. And so working with Amit, um, working with, uh, with Adam, with Joe, um, been some great folks that we've worked with to facilitate these studies at both Clay Center and Mead, and with several different uh, herbicide trials in, in each of those sites. For what it's worth, they say the product works from uh, Nebraska Extension. Uh, they've been putting it through the ringer, so that's, that's neat stuff. Before I let you go, what's the most common question you hear from the producer out there? Well, I think I think the the, the biggest the biggest draw to this product is going to be the savings, right? Um, now, with that, I, I always follow that comment with the the benefits of a dual tank application. And so, a lot of times, uh, just for efficiency, we will mix different products in the same tank in Nebraska, whether it's in corn or soy. And sometimes those products don't cooperate with each other and we have this antagonistic effect where it reduces the efficacy of both products. The really neat thing about Sea and Spray Ultimate with twin tanks is you can separate those products out and increase the effectiveness of both of those products, um, whether it's in the residual tank or the spot spray tank, in addition of course to the herbicide savings. So a lot of benefits of this technology that we're able to share with our customers. Quentin, thanks for your time. You're welcome. Thanks for having us. Thanks to Quentin for his time explaining the technical aspects and benefits of this sea and spray technology. If you're interested in learning more about this innovation and how it perhaps could impact your operation, you can find a link directly on the Market Journal website. Well, that is going to do it for this week's show. Do remember, if you missed a story, be sure you're following the Market Journal team on YouTube and on social media to join in on the conversation. We hope to see you back here next time. Until then, I'm Bryce Duskett, wishing you a safe and productive week. 
Join Market Journal online at marketjournal.unl.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Promotional support is provided by the Nebraska Farmer Magazine. Partial funding is provided by the Nebraska Soybean Board and the Nebraska Corn Board. Market Journal is produced by the University of Nebraska-Lincoln's Institute of Agriculture and Natural Resources.